One of the biggest mistakes we make is to assume that human beings are objective. We can try to be objective. That's what scientists do all the time. They use observation, evidence, and hypotheses. But it's tricky because scientists are still people, and people are collections of stories, biases, and facts. These problems exist across science, but perhaps the effects are felt deepest when it comes to medicine. Who lives? Who dies? Who gets the best care, and who gets experimented on? And importantly, who does the experimenting? The answers to these questions tell us a lot about who we consider important and who we consider expendable. Untextbook producer Ruba Memon became interested in medicine at a young age. I was in the hospital a lot just because of my asthma, and it was cool just kind of seeing like the team of doctors and nurses and just everyone coming together and working together. So medicine was something that I was interested in, but I didn't really realize that I was interested in women's healthcare until like high school. And you know that's when I found Dr. Deidre Cooper Owen's book, and the book was a combination of both you know medicine and activism. Deidre Cooper Owen's book, Medical Bondage: Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology, confronts the legacy of James Marion Sims. Sims was a surgeon in the 19th century, and he's often credited as the father of modern gynecology. But what's less talked about? Is that Sims made these discoveries by exploiting poor and enslaved women. He was one of the many male physicians who took advantage of black enslaved women's bodies and experimented on them. You know, he had this belief that black women were inferior yet stronger and could bear pain easily.、Uh, the same exact belief and situation continues to present itself today, and. For us to learn about this history is a step forward in dismantling the systems of oppression that still hold in our society today, right?、Um, so, I think that we must address these problems, and the only way we can properly do that is through the examination of our history. On this episode of Untextbooked, Ruba interviews Deirdre Cooper Owens about the history of reproductive medicine. And the forgotten contributions of the so-called mothers of modern gynecology. I'm Gabe Hoston, and this is Untextbooked. Stay tuned. Untextbooked. So, Dr. Cooper Owens, I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, what accepted myth or story has been told about Dr. Sims or him and his white male colleagues as a whole. You know, the way that American history had been taught traditionally was this: what we call this progressive march through history, that people who pioneered certain discoveries, that. They did so because they were really benevolent. They were kind-hearted. But when you insert the history of slavery, that complicates things a bit. And so, what I wanted to really show was how foundational slavery was to U.S. history in nearly every branch. And like you, I focus on the history of medicine, and I focus primarily on reproductive medicine. And so, the way that James Marion Sims. As the father of American gynecology had been thought of, really until the late 20th century, the 1990s, and the 2000s, was as an American hero. 
his early biographers wrote about this man who was so kind-hearted that he took it upon himself to take in these sick enslaved women and he repaired them after years and years of grueling experimental surgical work. I always said if Sims was the father of American gynecology or Ephraim McDowell, who was known as the father of the ovariotomy, or Francois-Marie Provost, known as the father of the C-section. If these men are known as the fathers, then who are the mothers, right? And I think for your listeners out here, especially those who are interested in history, this is really something that is a challenge when you're writing about enslaved people. The only written records that really exist are from the people who own them. (laughs) So James Marion Sims had an idea after dealing with a white patient to um, repair what was then called vesico-vaginal fistula. So essentially, that condition happened after a woman was in childbirth for a number of days, but she could not give birth because the baby was stuck. So the end result was incontinence. And so he, as he says, scours the county for cases in Alabama. He finds these eight or nine women And he asked the owners to lease the slaves to him. Enslaved people were legally considered not human beings, but movable property. And, you know, as you might imagine, there's a lot of mistakes that were made. And these mistakes are being made on these women's bodies. I guess the, the silver lining, if one could use that term, is at least the women's condition was repaired surgically. So they weren't suffering anymore from that particular condition. But unfortunately, he did not record the names of all of them. So we only know Anarcha, Betsy, and Lucy. We know that they were in those those three in particular were in their late teens to early 20s. We don't know anything else about them. But when Dr. Sims's white medical assistants quit, he had to teach these enslaved women. And so what that meant for them, they still went back to their original owners and they still were enslaved. And (laughs) this is fortunate for the slave owner, unfortunate for the women. Their economic value can then increase because they're able to still have babies, but they're also bringing another skill. You know, in history fields, we call it reproductive labor. And that means that they're not only providing domestic labor, but their bodies and their biological functions are also considered labor. And the other thing I think is really important, it goes to what these women already had in terms of their own knowledge, right? That they weren't just empty vessels, but that women had been taking care of each other and birthing babies, serving as midwives ever since the beginning of time. And so they also had their own knowledge as well. Later on, you also talk about poor Irish immigrant women who were also treated horribly and oppressed by the healthcare system, the women's healthcare system. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about these poor Irish immigrant women. Oh, yeah, I sure can. So after he sells his hospital, his slave hospital in Alabama, he moves to New York. And this is where he really becomes famous and his career takes off. And in 1855, he founds the uh, New York State Hospital for Women and claimed it was the first hospital for women in the United States. But that's not true. 
because he actually had a hospital for enslaved women in Alabama. And so because of where the hospital was located, it was in a predominantly white neighborhood in Manhattan. And it also was in a neighborhood that had a disproportionately large number of Irish immigrants. And so there was one woman in particular, Mary Smith, and her name sometimes gets lost, you know, in in the telling of Sims. But she was actually experimented on a year longer than the enslaved women in Alabama. And unlike his successful surgical repair in Alabama, Sims totally botches Mary Smith's surgeries. And in the end, after nearly six years of experimenting on this woman, also making her work in the hospital because she had been poor and without a home, so living on the streets, he essentially just sends her sends her back to the streets when he botches the surgery. And it was just a really sad story because this was a young woman in her early 20s who migrated, immigrated to this country by herself. But after the, the final surgery that was botched at the end of the six-year experimental phase of work, um, and Sim sends her to the streets, Mary doesn't have anything. She doesn't have a home. She no longer has a job. She can't live in the hospital anymore. And so sadly, she takes up begging as a a young woman still in her 20s. And she was run over by a horse and cart um, just a year or two later. So it's a really sad story. And there are so many more Irish immigrant women like Mary Smith and young teenage girls. And so those were some of the stories that were really disheartening for me because many of these doctors had learned their procedures on enslaved people. Many of them had been taught by some of the same professors that taught Sims and some of his colleagues that I mentioned in the book. And so there is, I think, a story that can be told probably for a lot of immigrant groups in the 19th century and early 20th century who ultimately suffered at the hands of many of these men um, who had never really been critiqued or investigated in critical ways. You know, you talked about Mary Smith, and she's one of many, right? There were so many, like, Irish immigrant women who were poor who turned to prostitution, as you talked about in your book. And that, in turn, led them to be shunned from hospitals, basically, if they had, like, STDs, right? And then with Black women, there were so many flawed views and ways they were perceived. And some of those thoughts... Both of these things have parallels today, right? How did Dr. Sims and his other white male colleagues, how did their flawed views impact medicine today? You know, unfortunately, a number of doctors, I mean, it's not overwhelming, but some of them had been taught in med school that, oh, you know, I know that Sims's experiments, you know, his surgical experiments couldn't have hurt because women don't have a lot of nerve endings in the upper vaginal area, which is just not true. Also that Black people or poor people or immigrant people are lying when they talk about their pain because the, the belief is that somehow they want drugs, they want narcotics, and so they can't be trusted or either they're just being histrionic. Um, those are some of the, the ideas. Sometimes the patient blaming that tends to happen is right out of uh, right out of an 18th or 19th century medical textbook. Um, so, for instance, when I would do my research on these historical 
figures, you would often have doctors when the surgeries didn't go well or their procedures failed. They would say, oh, you know, it was the, the fault of this ignorant granny midwife or, you know, some other really demeaning term about the Black woman patient or the Black woman uh, medical practitioner. So whether that's a granny midwife or a plantation nurse. And it's the same way that you find, particularly with maternal morbidity and mortality, doctors will say, oh, well, if Black women just ate better, if they came to their their appointments, um, if they weren't so fat. And so a large part of it stems from the medical, the legacy of medical racism that has deep, deep roots in the 18th and 19th century in this country. Right. Yeah. And I I thought it was really interesting how you mentioned that if a Black woman walks into an ER with pain, oftentimes doctors believe that these women are lying, right? And, you know, I was looking at statistics and I found stuff like how Black mothers in the U.S. are more likely to die than white mothers. And I wanted to know your thoughts on how we can start to fix this. I think what you're doing is... is you know, really important what you and and your colleagues are doing. You're educating young people in particular. And so that is important because the U.S. was not the United States until the 1780s. But even though democracy, American democracy might have been founded in the 1780s, American slavery was much older. It was introduced in the 1400s. And so it was not until the late 20th century, the literally the 1960s, that you had laws that finally said, oh, wait, racial discrimination is bad all around. And so we're going to have Black people have access to laws that were created hundreds of years ago. So from the 1960s until 2020, You've literally had people who are still living. My parents, as a matter of fact, they were born in the 1940s. You have people who have lived most of their lives in Jim Crow, right? I'm the first generation in my family to attend an integrated school, but it wasn't really integrated because of white flight that started to happen in the late 60s and 70s. And so when you think about all of these things, you can't just point to one person. This means that there are systems that had already been put in place well before we were born and that people were upholding until a very, very, very late time in our history. And unfortunately, we see the impact of those discriminatory and racist and classist policies still being enacted in many of the structures that we are trying to transform and, and change, you know, for the better. So for me, it's medicine. For a lot of folk, it's law enforcement. Um, When we think about the impact of slavery, that plantations had slave patrols who actually had legal authority to capture slaves. When, When we think about medical hospitals that went to slave owners and said, hey, can we lease or rent your slaves so that we can experiment on and quote unquote heal them or fix them? These are structural problems. So in no way am I defending someone like James Marion Sims because he doesn't need my defense. He lived a pretty good life, right? But in saying that, oh, he's the worst person in the world, he was a butcher, he was all of these horrible things, I'm saying no. Exceptionalizing him erases the fact that he was doing what everybody else around him was doing. And he was doing it because it was legal. It was not only legal, but it was considered right. And so 
what we do is educate folk. I think we continue to speak out. We continue to put pressure on organizations and the government um, using history, I think, as a tool to show that this is not some, you know, play on a race card. Um, And also we support organizations, institutions, individuals who are about dismantling structural and systemic racism, classism, sexism. You know, I can name all the isms, right? You know, we have to start seeing Black people's oppression, um, Black people's death as important as, as white people's. I often use the example of cervical cancer. So when white women, especially um, more elite white women, were suffering disproportionately from cervical cancer and also breast cancer, guess what happens? The pap smear becomes a normal part of a well woman's exam in the United States. Mammograms become a part of well women's exams because you literally had elite white women who were saying, wait a minute, this is killing us off. And they had access to power and were powerful themselves. And so they made a change because they saw the negative impact on their community. What if those same powerful white women did that with regard to black women's mortality, maternal mortality and maternal morbidity and black infant mortality? What if they did that? We could literally change policies and change medical practices in this country. All of us should have a right to be healthy. Like all of us should have a right to be healthy. Yes. Yes. (laughs) As you were talking, I was fiercely nodding my head (laughs) because everyone needs to be treated equally, especially in terms of healthcare. Like, you know, people often say like, oh, all lives matter or whatever, then show it, you know? And so, um, yes, I, I 100% agree. Knowing what we know about like the roots of contemporary gynecology, what should women of color specifically do? Or like specifically for like black women and lower income women, like how can we tell if our treatment is unbiased and can can that ever be a reality? Oh, that's a great question. I have been in conversation with a few black OBGYNs, um, black women, I should say, OBGYNs, um, midwives and doulas um, and, and some activists. And I think that black women and Black birthing people need patient advocates. And the thing is, certain hospitals do provide patient advocates, but I'm talking about having a database or resource list of advocates who are not hospital-affiliated. Because anybody hospital-affiliated, even if their intentions are good, they're going to be representing the the needs um, and the policies and the politics of the hospital. And the hospital's become the dangerous places for Black women and Black birthing people when they're when they're giving birth. So I think independent patient advocates, um, they just don't exist in large numbers, unfortunately. So what we have to do is really get the word out. I think social media is great in this way, um, where people advocate for quality health care 
Um, there are a lot of organizations that don't just kind of give you the stats or give you the history lesson, but they'll say, hey, here's a list of resources. Here are some of the things that you can do. I think that's important. I think the development of a hotline so that Black women and birthing people, really poor, poor folk, anybody who is in harm's way, if you feel ignorant about a thing, you call, you ask, you get correct information. And you're treated kindly, you're treated with respect, because what we know from another study that comes out of the University of Southern California and also UCLA psychologists, the ways that racism impacts African-Americans literally shortens your life. And so what it does is you are inflamed inside. So literally there is internal inflammation that tends to happen. And this cuts across class, marital status, education, none of that that matters. And so African-Americans tend to have a a shorter life than white Americans, by and large, women and men. We tend to have shorter lifespans. Um, And what these, these psychologists are now finding is the low level inflammation that tends to happen is the physiological responses to racism. Um, I, you know, I, I don't, and this is going to sound really pessimistic and I always consider myself an eternal optimist. I don't know if in my lifetime, and I'm 48 now, I don't know because racism is, it's been here since, since the beginning. Um, colonization was about, you know, literally conquering other groups of people. So I don't know if we could live in a world where there was no bias against anybody. I'm not sure, but, but I am hopeful that by people paying attention to the, the really harmful effects of racism and classism and sexism and all of these kinds of things, ableism, homophobia, queer phobia. I mean, I could go on and on, um, knowing the harmful effects that, um, I, at least for me, when I teach us history, I don't do so to create bad guys and good guys. I do so to say, hey, you know, let's know the full story. And in knowing the full story, perhaps we can learn to be more empathetic. Thank you for all that you're doing. And thank you for writing this book. I have recommended it to many people already. (laughs) Um, Great, great, great. But yes, Dr. Deirdre Cooper Owens is the author of Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology. Dr. Cooper Owens, where can people find you online? Ooh, they can find me online. So I always make jokes on the old people's platform, Facebook. (laughs) You can just go to author Deirdre Cooper Owens. And you can also go to my website, www.deirdrecooperowens.com. Dr. Deirdre Cooper Owens is director of the Humanities and Medicine program at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Ruba Memon is a freshman at Northwestern University. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton, who are a senior and recent graduate of Walnut Hill School for the Arts in Massachusetts. Untextbook is edited by Bethany Denton and Jeff Edman. Fernand Rain is our head cheerleader. Our website is untextbook.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Untextbooked. That's where you'll find more stories from the present and the past that shouldn't be overlooked. Untextbook is our project of God history, 
an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet.